These are the words of a radically changed man. And these are the words of a man whose life was in two parts, the life that once was and the life that now is. These are the words of a man who is no longer who or what he once was. And these are the words of a man who was taken into his heart of hearts, taken into his bones and his mind and, and his muscle memory, the truth of the teaching of Paul here in Colossians chapter 3. These are the words of a man who, whose life was a complete wreckage. He was a card-carrying slave trader. He tore families apart and hauled human beings as, as cattle and as cargo. These are the words of a man who looked into his impending death on a sinking ship in a raging storm and threw words up to heaven, save me. These are the words of a man whose life was turned upside down, inside out, right side up, every which way. And these are the words of a man who repented. These are the words of a man who became a minister in the Church of England, who learned wonderful truths from some great friends, from John and Charles Wesley, from George Whitfield. These are the words of a man who became a mentor of William Wilberforce and encouraged him to labor for the abolition or the abolishment of the slave trade to rid the empire of that, that wicked evil. And these are the words of a man who penned one of the most famous songs world over. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. These are the words of John Newton. And here they are. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> Can you relate to those words? Is something hum or buzz? Is there an ache inside you when you hear that, when you know that you are no longer comfortable living in the patterns and the habits that you used to live in. You just can't feel comfortable in those. And you know there's a collision within your being. You know there's shadow and you know there's, there's light. And you know there's things that, that you, you do and things that you think that you don't want to do and you don't want to think. Can, can anybody relate to that? Does that connect with you? See, Newton knew well what Paul writes here in Colossians chapter 3. Now last week as we started this short series in chapter 3 of Colossians, we saw how Paul teaches us that it is the love and the work of God through Jesus to redeem and to restore us and to unite him, us to himself by the power of the Spirit. And he has graciously given us 
a new identity, a new way of being in this world because now his spirit lives within us. And so because we are loved by him, we can now live this life of doing what we ought to. So being loved, now we can do good. Rather than living by the broken ways of this world of doing good in order to be loved, we are, are loved into a whole new way of being so that we can do good. Or in other words, we're saved unto good works. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved into a life of good works that God has called for us before we even existed. And we're empowered to do it by his his spirit, so we are changed by grace, called to this new life where we live in accordance with the ways and the principles of the kingdom of heaven, not the broken, fractured ways of this world. And so what this means ultimately is that to be a Christian isn't simply taking on some new moral structure. To be a Christian isn't simply to, to have a new uh, thought life of, of a new moral philosophy. It's way more radical and it's way more miraculous than that. It's actually having a whole new nature. It's being given, given a new heart and a new nature and a new identity from heaven or in accordance with what it says in Ezekiel 36, that a heart of stone that couldn't love, that, that couldn't sense the world as it ought to sense the world, a heart of stone is now converted and changed into a heart of flesh because heaven has breathed on us. Like, to be a Christian, in other words, means you are not who you were. So become who you are. You are not who you were. So become who you are. See, every, every follower of Jesus has a two-part story. We're like, we're like the calendar of history. There's, there's B.C. and A.D., Right? Every one of us who's a follower of Jesus has a BC, where, part one, where we lived in, in the darkness and lived in this kingdom of death and operated by it. But then there's 80, Anno Domini, the, the year of our Lord, or in other words, when he comes into our life and rule and reign, and now we live as citizens of heaven with a new identity as, as the beloved children of God. We're not who we were, so become who you are. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're no longer the man or woman we once were. Now in our passage today, we see that we are to live in such a way that recognizes this reality, that recognizes as followers of Jesus, we are to live differently than we used to live. To become who we are, we live differently. Now how do we do this? Well, in a brief overview of chapter 3, there, there's these three points that Paul lays out. And the first one is this, be seeking the things of heaven. He says, seek or be seeking the things that are above. That means to live in accordance with the heaven reality that God is God, that we are his creatures, that, that Jesus Christ, the Son, is our Savior, and that he has saved us and done what we couldn't do. Now we can live in accordance with him because he's breathed true life into us, and we have eternal life, and eternal life starts now. So live in accordance with that. Be thinking about those things. Give your time and attention to those truths. Let the beauty of Jesus transform you as you abide with him in his word by the power of his spirit. And because of that, now be putting sin to death. Be putting sin to death. Consider, reckon the old in us, the old way of life as dead. And then be putting on love. Follow the way of Jesus. 
Now, as we turn to verse 5 to really dig through this, uh, I just want to caveat uh, where we're going by saying this. Um, and, and this memory came to mind as I was thinking about what we're getting into today. So uh, I have very vivid memories um, when I was young of looking out the window and seeing my dad with his big pruners, his, his, his big tree trimmers. And he would go out, he would go to work on the cherry tree or, or the locust tree out there. And as a little kid, I looked out the window going, why is dad killing the tree? And he's chopping off these branches, like left and right. And by the time he, I mean, it looked like he was mad at the thing. But he wasn't harming it. He was bringing health to it. And so as the season went on, those trees, because he, he knew what he was doing in his pruning, those trees just exploded with life and foliage. Pruning is for flourishing. Pruning is for flourishing. God prunes us because he wants us to flourish. If it's a foolish gardener who thinks pruning is cruel or unkind to the plants. It's a foolish person who thinks pruning by God to us is unkind. It's actually loving so we flourish. So pruning is for flourishing and I hope that helps as we move through these verses today. So verse five, put to death. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Those are strong words. This is a violent metaphor, putting these things to death. See, Paul's like a surgeon. He's, he's using his words like a scalpel to cut out the body-destroying cancer that is within us. Put to death, or... Reckon as dead or count as dead these things. And notice he doesn't say something like, hey, just consider these things as less important. Just do them a little less. Maybe, maybe dabble in them, but don't major in them. Or let them be a hobby. You can let them linger. They're not that bad. You can put up with some of them. That's not where he goes at all. He says, kill these things kill these things, treat them as though they're dead. Now, an older word for this, big uh, expensive word, is uh, mortification, to mortify these things. And that means, again, to kill these things, kill the sins, the destructive patterns in your life. Why? Why is Paul so bent on, on saying this? Because these things are the ways of the empire of death. They are not the ways of the kingdom of heaven. These are not the ways of Jesus. These are not the ways of life that bring flourishing to our own souls and to the communities in which we live. And as you look at this list, you'll, you'll notice that this is a five-fold list. And this five-fold list is concerning sexual sin. So you have in here terms like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So couple things as we start to work through this. One, uh, there's a good deal of overlap between these terms, but there's also some delineation in them as well, which is helpful to see. Number two, it, we go from um, sexual sins, and it seems we, then we move to an economic sin. Sexual sins to greed, and we'll see why. So with that said, uh, let's look at these terms here, and I think it's going to help us if we uh, restructure or reformat this verse. So let's look at it 
like this. I know that helped me when I ordered it this way or, or formatted this way, rather. So this term uh, that we have in, in our translation, sexual immorality, this is a Greek word and uh, might sound familiar to you. It's the word porneia, and this just means any sexual activity outside of marriage, outside of covenant faithfulness between a man and woman the way God has, has ordained and designed things. So that's a big bucket of sins. There's a lot of different ways for this to happen. That's the first term. The second one is impurity. Um, this is akatharsia, uh, and, and this means uncleanness or, or to, something is, is polluted or, or, or corrupted. And, and the idea here is that the, the heart and the mind of somebody isn't the way it should be. It's, it's bent and, and it's, it's, um, it's corrupted and broken. Then we have the term passion, which comes from the, the word pathos. Um, there's good passions, but then there's, there's bad passions. And this, this means an uncontrollable appetite for things that ought not to be. Another term that's similar to that is evil desire. This means lustful passion. In other words, this is, this is an overwanting. This word epithumia is like an overwanting and a, a f- too far reaching and grabbing what is not meant to be yours. It's a desire directed at self-gratification, at the cost of destruction and harm to others and even to self. This leads us to the last term, uh, covetousness. Uh, The Greek word is pleonexia, which sounds like a a greedy word because there's so many syllables in it. Uh, But this this is a, covetousness means just greediness. In other words, uh, um, it's a devouring grasping. It's a destructive hunger and an overreaching. Okay, so in short, these things have to do with using your body and using other people's bodies in ways of self-focused, self-gratifying consumption, using what is sacred, the body that God has given you, using what is sacred, uh, another image bearer, using what is sacred, the, the gift of intimacy that is designed to function in a framework of fidelity. It's using these things in broken and, and twisted and dysfunctional ways. And it happens all the time, and it's so normalized. I don't think I have to, to work hard to convince you that we live in a hypersexualized culture that's normalizing everything. It's everywhere. It's just... It's the way of the media. It's the way of conversations. It's hypersexualized and it's normalized. And Paul says this is not the way it should be. And this isn't because God is some kind of prude or some kind of cosmic killjoy. I mean, he's designed these, these good gifts, right? Paul's so bent on, on giving this admonition and this warning to God's people because the world keeps commodifying these sacred things and selling them back to us in, in, in broken ways. And we're not called to live that way. And these things become self-destructive. And they become forms of assassinating other people as we seek to gain what, what we want. These ways are death, they're not life. They're good things twisted for bad ends. And so what that means is... So when you are consuming pornography or when you're engaging in sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage or when you've been normalized to twistings of these things, you're not participating in love and freedom, which the world builds these things as. Love and freedom, that's these things. No, no. These are the ways of disintegration. 
These are the ways of devouring other people. These are the ways of self-destruction. And as you go further into them, you go further into bondage and further into death and disintegration. And these things don't just destroy us, they destroy communities. They rip communities apart at the seams and they put seams where there shouldn't be seams in the community. Now, remember, as Paul was saying, Jesus' story is now our story, uh, if we're a follower. And what that means is Jesus, who though he had no sin, he, he died and entered into death. And then he rose again and he ascended. And in Jesus, we, we die to the old way of life. And we go down and we die. That's what baptism represents. And then we rise to a new way of living. We now inhabit the world in a different way, becoming more and more like this, this Jesus. And we're empowered to do so. And we're empowered to fight these things, to no longer live in idolatry. Now, he uses the word covetousness here. Right? Notice the list leads to covetousness. Um, and what is this? Why is this tied in here? It's because it has the idea of sexual greed, of, of grabbing things that should not be ours, overreaching, right? Seeking more and more and more and more to fill you up. And then he says, look, he goes right for the root of it. He says, this is idolatry. And that might sound like a really, um, I don't know, uh, irrelevant word to you because maybe in your mental framework, your narrative, idolatry is something that was done hundreds of years ago or in some backwards country. And idolatry is just when some pagan person is bowing down to a piece of stone that's obviously stone and, and not a statue. But idolatry is is way more prevalent and way more relevant than that. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is when you replace the creator God with something within his creation. It's, it's when you give to something within creation the allegiance and love that you should be giving to God, the only one who can give you your meaning and your purpose and satisfy that, that gaping hole within your chest. Or you could say it this way. Idolatry is simply trust in a counterfeit God. A God who can't meet the demands that, that you place on him. A God that will, in the end, not save you, but crush you and leave you empty and hollow. And so he says all these things regarding our, our broken sexuality and the way we treat each other, these come from, from, an un, from, from idolatry of thinking that, that these things are going to fill us up and these things are going to give us meaning and purpose and they won't. Only your creator can. Nothing, nothing within creation can. So again, why are, are we to put to death uh, the sexual immorality, which is idolatry? Well, one, it, it cuts us off from our life. And who's our life? Jesus, our Lord. It cuts us off from him. It cuts us off from loving relationships from, from other people. It's self-sabotage and assassination of other people. And, and then third here, it, it brings wrath or, or judgment. And, uh, and maybe this is where you go, ah, I knew it. Like this God of the Bible is just like this vindictive, angry God who's just throwing around, you know, lightning bolts. Like, th no, this idea of wrath. Uh, let me just ask you. If something or someone is destroying somebody you love, are you okay with that? 
whether it's your child or a spouse or a parent or a friend, are you okay with these things that are ravaging them and destroying them? Of course not. You want to see those things out of their life. You want to see health. And so God's wrath is not just some kind of grumpy, arbitrary judgment. It is his holiness and his perfection coming into contact with those things that are destroying his beloved. He will bring judgment because he's good, not because he's grumpy. He will bring judgment, which is good news for this world because this world needs justice as well as mercy. Now, that that leads me now to verse 7. This is great. Uh, He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. We need this because without this, we can get all judgy, you know, and start doing this and go, yeah, we got our stuff together. That world, man, they're messed up. I'm glad I'm not them. Glad I'm Heath, you know, that kind of thing. And Paul calls us all to account. He calls all his readers here to account. He's saying we all need the grace of Jesus. We have all fallen short of the glory of living as image bearers who love him and love each other well. We have all damaged each other and used our bodies and other people's bodies in and, and, and ways that are damaging. We have all done it. All of us. So this keeps us as, as followers of Jesus um, from strutting There should be no smugness in an apprentice of Jesus. There should be no strutting about going, look at me. Because it's the grace of God that has saved us. Well, that said, verse 8. Let's read verse 8 and on. He says, but now. But now you must put them all away. And gives us another list here. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in process and knowledge after the image of its creator. So here Paul puts forward another five-fold list of things that must die. Uh, and this time he's going to move from sexual sins to the violence in the heart and the verbal violence that spills out of it. So again, it'll help us to, to reformat it so we can see it a little more clear. So let's, let's change the slide there. There we go. Uh, anger, wrath, and malice. These, these first three, these are tightly interwoven. Anger, what is anger? We think we just know what it is, but have you ever thought, like, what is it really? It's an animosity or it's an antagonism from one to another. It, it's it's uh, an animosity towards someone or something. Wrath is a very, very similar word with, with malice, and both of these have to do um, with, uh, and you're going to be like, wait a minute, there's wrath there and God's wrath. There are two different words, but there's good wrath and there's bad wrath, okay? This, this is a selfish wrath or, or malice that, that has ill will towards another and wants to see them cut down and destroyed. It doesn't seek their flourishing. It, it seeks their their ruin. And so you have these three terms here, and those are the internal condition. That's the heart, the attitudes, the, the, the posture within our being. But then those are outed, those are expressed in slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Now that word for slander there is blasphemia, which sounds like blasphemy. 
Um, and what that means is to bear false witness, or in other words, to want to harm somebody with your words. You, you want to tear them down. And then obscene talk, this is a word here that, just, that means abusive or dehumanizing speech that doesn't honor one another, doesn't honor God, it doesn't honor the world he's created, but again, it tears down and it's abusive, it's, it's gross, it's not the good and the beautiful and the true, it's the opposite of those things. Now, if you want to summarize all of this to a degree, you can say that violent emotions will eventuate in violent language. And this happens all the time. Hop online. You're going to find that violent language real quick. On, you know, just scroll. You might recall what you said to somebody over the weekend or while you were driving in your car on 580 at the car in front of you, right? It's going to, it's going to out that anxiety and, and frustration within outs. You know, Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Right? The, the mouth, the tongue is, is like, like a bucket that, that goes into uh, the well of our inner being and, and draws up the waters out of the heart. What's in the well will be in that bucket. What's in the heart will come out in in our speech, and so we gossip and, and we backbite and, and we say painful things to people. So our words, if you want to know what's in your heart, do a true analysis of your words. Not just the quick, happy, smiley ones that you might offer to somebody on a Sunday, but a deep analysis. Be brave and analyze your words in your speech, and you're going to see that your words are like an x-ray of your chest. And apprentices of Jesus are to use words really differently. Differently because we have different hearts. We're not to lie to one another. We are to, to speak the truth. We are to seek each other's good, not tear them down so we can feel better or look better in front of other people, right? We are, to, we are not who we once were. We are not who we once were, demonizing other people, assassinating the character of others with gossip and snide remarks and scheming because of the evil in our hearts. We're not who we once were, lying to others, using language to, to manipulate, to scheme for self-gain. But we are to use our words like Jesus, that we might more and more look like him and sound like him and conversate like him and encourage and warn like him. Now, Friends, I, I know uh, there's sexual sin and idolatrous covetousness in this room and this church family because we're humans, one, uh, but also because we, we've shared stories and, and I've heard what's happening in your lives and I, and I know that there's verbal violence in, in this community because I've heard it and I've seen it and I've participated in these things. But God is moving among us, rooting these things out. And, and so with that said, we cannot let this, this scripture and God's word to us, we cannot let this message simply be interesting or, or intellectually uh, theological curiousness. We, we have to hear these things and act 
upon them. Our actions in this world have eternal consequences. What we do with our hands and our eyes and our, and our mouths and our feet and our bodies have eternal consequences, right? So we have to put these things to death that he's talking about by, by confessing them speaking them, repenting of them. And repenting means to turn around. It, just, it doesn't mean you just say a word, I repent. It means your, your whole life is now reoriented the opposite way because you have a new mindset and new, a new habit. So it's living differently in this world. We are called to live differently. That's what it means to live a life of repentance is to follow the way of Jesus and not follow the ways of this broken world. Now, lest we fall into some despair now, like, oh, I can't do all that. Like, I, I barely made it through the week, right? Lest we fall into despair or legalism or just a type of crushing burden of like, go out and do this. Look at verse 9 and 10. This is so good. Paul, again, he's just taking us back to the truth of who we are. So he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So after he says, you know, kill all this stuff, then, then he says, live accordingly, like live in the truth because you, the old self, and that word there is anthropos or man or, or being, put off the old man or woman because, well, you have in Christ and now there's this new one. So live in accordance with the new one. You have a new nature. In other words, you're not stuck because it's just me and I'm always going to do this. No, no. The Holy Spirit lives within you and empowers you. You're not deadlocked in sin or addiction or despair. He's at work in us, renewing us in the image of Jesus. Could Jesus overcome the temptations and the things that came his way? What's the big answer to that? Yes, the spirit of Jesus lives within you. We are not who we once were. So again, Newton, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's true. Yet there's the realism of the reality that we're in process. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. And I am not what I hope to be in another world. And then all of this putting off the old and putting on the new and living in light of the kingdom of heaven brings this deep, deep unity to our community, to the community of God's people. Look what he says in verse 11. Look where he takes this. This is fascinating. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is what? Is all and in all. What is he saying? Here in the community of the saints, here in the church, here, here in the body of Christ, we are not divided by these, by these old angers. We're not split apart by self-sick sexual abuses and commodification and an objectification of each other. We're, we're united now in the deepest way possible. Here in this community, the sins that once destroyed hearts and, and, and homes, they, they aren't our way. And so you have Greek and Jew, now brother and sister. The racial division is overcome. You have circumcised and uncircumcised living in harmony. That's the religious division overcome. You have barbarian and Scythian. And, and barbarian meant like, 
oh, those, those dumb foreigners, they're not as sophisticated as us. But you go beyond the barbarians and then you get to the Scythians and they're even worse. Oh, those savages out there. Here, you have the cultural division overcome. And then you have slave and free. This is a socioeconomic division that so, that so tears people apart. That's overcome. Now, how is it the case that there's this deep unity? Well, he goes on to say, because Jesus is all. What, is, what does that mean? It means he is our God. He has our love. He has our allegiance. He is the deep, common bond. And if we're united in him, then what can tear us apart? Jesus' blood is thicker than the political, the cultural, the ethnic, and the preferential waters that flow and tear humanity apart. His blood is thicker than those things and holds us together. And then how is this truly possible? Well, because Jesus is in all, which means his spirit lives within us. In other words, you are a new creation. You are not who you were. You are to become who you are. Put to death all the things that are the kingdom of death and live into the love of the kingdom of heaven. And don't, don't minimize the, the, the sexualization or the, or the normalization of things that we see in this world. Don't justify and let these things creep in and go, oh, it's not that much or it's not that bad because these things are destroying you and others and tearing communities apart. And when it comes to the verbal violence, don't, don't minimize that and go, ah, it's just a joke. No, I didn't really, I didn't really mean it. Hey, dude, it's just, it's just words. It's not that big of a deal. No, no. How we use our, our lips and our, and our tongues can bring a blessing and curse. These sins are cancers that kill our soul and destroy community. So friends, if Jesus is your Lord, remember you're not what you were. Become who you are. And the question then that hangs before us now that I just want to offer is what is he asking you to count as dead? What is he asking you to put to death? Now in this moment, as the Holy Spirit moves and breathes, where is he shining light on a shadow in your life? What is he calling you to kill? And his relentless love for you, what is he calling you to leave behind so that you can live in accordance with who he is? And, and maybe there's something buzzing right now that you're like, I don't want, don't, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. That's probably the thing. It's like, no, I'll just deal with that later. I can't go there emotionally. Like, that's probably something he's highlighting. Attention. So, in the words of John Owen in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, um, which is really light, easy reading, in case you're wanting to know, um, he says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to be always at it while you live? Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing. Our actions have eternal consequences. Now, by way of illustration, as we close, l let, me, let me ask you um, what you think about this doctor. 
the doctor is in surgery. His patient is on the table. The abdomen is open. The cavity is there open. And he, with his scalpel and his skilled hands and his years of training, is cutting out the malignant tumors. He's cutting them out. Surgery's almost done. He looks and he sees this small other mass, this small other malignant tumor. And he looks at it and he goes, that's just a little one. It's just small. It's been a long day. I'm tired. And besides, I'm going to sew this cavity back up and no one's going to see. No one no one will know. It's small. It's no big deal. What do you call that? Thank you. That is malpractice. It's tantamount to murder. Because that will metastasize if it is that malignant cancer and you left it there just because it didn't seem that big. Jesus is not into malpractice. Jesus is into benevolent practice, seeing all the stuff that's destroying us taken out of us, and he calls us to lean into that by the power of his spirit and put these things to death. So, brothers and sisters, I, I love you too much not to give this message. Paul loves the church too much not to warn and admonish, and the spirit loves us too much just to have us hear these things, walk out and go, let's have lunch, and then keep all the stuff still in there. So with the empowering love of God within us, may we, with Newton, say, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, what destructive patterns of sin is God in his relentless love seeking to kill within you? as you seek to obey him by his spirit. The good news is you are not who you were. Become who you are. May it be so. You know, we have the opportunity now um, to hear how a life has been changed. So I want to invite up a, a good friend of mine. Um, this, this is Nick White. Nick, why don't you come on up? And um, yes, thank you. Number seven, yeah, here you go. Um, is, yeah, are we good? Number seven? Um, Nick, thank you for joining us. Uh, obviously, you know why you're up here. Um, we, we wanted to have the opportunity to let you hear from Nick um, about how he is not who he once was, but he is becoming who he is in Christ. And so, uh, Nick, would you mind telling us for, for a little bit here on how you came to call Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Yeah. Um, okay, I got five minutes. Um, <laughs> You're good. Okay, yeah, so I think just to step back, I, I love the quote because um, I'm definitely not who I ought to be. So I had a little bit of insecurity coming up here this week and pretending like I had it all figured out because that's definitely not the case. Um, and all of this is by the grace of God, by the way. So if, if I say anything that makes it sound like this is of my own doing, that's a mistake and it's not that... Um, but yeah, I think this started obviously very young. I was the youngest of five kids through marriage. And um, yeah, I mean, high school dropout, uh, just 
not what my brothers and sisters were, good grades, and a lot of other things I can, you know, get if I didn't have, if I had more than five minutes. Um, but yeah, I just... You I, have 55, I just I go. Cool, let's go. Just let's go. roll. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so like, I think that I, at an early age, what I realized through doing some, some other work in the church here is that like, I just have this massive insecurity that I'm not good enough. Um, and so I pursue love in all the wrong places. Um, and, mm. and I, sex, alcohol, drugs, friendship, gossip, um, money, finances, any kind of success, any kind of competition. I was looking for love. Um, I was building up these mountaintops on my head. Once I buy a house, once I accomplish this, once I accomplish that, once I get this raised, then I'll be like fulfilled, happy. Um, and so I was building these mountaintops and the more successful I got in these, appro- in these pursuits, I realized that these mountaintops weren't mountaintops at all, but they were just valleys. Um, and they were disguising themselves as mountaintops, but I was lonely, I was depressed, I was wondering why these things weren't fulfilling me. Um, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, just pursuing those things. And, and I, I think in one of those valleys, in one of those times where I was like, why am I just not happy? Why do I continue to pursue more? Um, I think that's where Jesus really met me and opened my eyes. And I love the Amazing Grace quote. I, I was once blind and, and now I, I see. In that process, I know that I'm throwing a little curveball here. Uh, um, how how was the the church involved in that, and the Spirit working to show you who Jesus was? What was your process with connecting with God's Word and God's people? Mm, curveball. Um, yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of great witnesses uh, in the church. Um, a lot of people who were walking with me. Um, giving me that fragrance of Jesus here on earth. The hands and feet of Jesus are here. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think just being in community, um, making me feel that love of Christ. Uh, yeah. Hmm, awesome. Well, we're glad you're a part of this church family, Nick. I hope you know that. Um, now that Jesus has changed you and is changing you, what's different? Like, what's different in your life and the way you go about this world and the things that you do? Yeah, I, um, I still struggle, obviously. Um, I think we all do. Um, but I think that when Jesus opened my eyes, I think what he opened my eyes to was that he loves me unconditionally. There's nothing I can accomplish that will make him love me more. Um, uh, my buddy has a, uh, a saying, it's, you know, when Jesus says he's the bread of life, those who believe in him won't be hungry or, or thirsty. Um, Christ can fulfill what nothing else will. So all these things I was pursuing to fulfill myself, I had a God-sized hole in my heart that only God can fulfill. Um, and so I think it's just the reminder of his love. When I, when I pursue those things still to this day, I still cared what every one of y'all thought today. I was like really worried about what everyone you thought. And that's just my own desire to be loved and be good enough. Um, and I had to remind myself this whole week in, pre- in preparation for this that um, the creator of the universe sent his son to die for me. Um, and I think that that's enough. And so I have to fall back on that. And when I do go pursue those earthly things in those artificial mountaintops, I have the ability now to fall back on grace um, 
confess my sins and know that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive me of those sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So it's a process, um, but he's so good. And uh, look at that, eight seconds. <laughs> who, who cares about the time? This is too good, man. You know, we've known each other for a few years now, and it just, God has done such wonderful things in you. And um, I just want to affirm that so you, you know that God has changed you in such significant ways, and so many people have seen that. So glory be to him, and uh, we love you. We're, we're thankful that you're a part of this church community. Thank you for sharing uh, your heart with us and what, what the Lord's been doing in you. Um, I was wondering if you would pray for this church family, um, if you would bless us with a prayer. Sure. Thanks. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are so good. I thank you for the love, mercy, and grace that you showed me to open my eyes to your truth. I pray, Lord, for those in here today that don't yet know you, maybe even the ones in here with the same beliefs that they aren't good enough. Mm. Would you open their eyes to your truth? May they feel your presence today, God, and experience the depth of your unconditional love. Help them see the beauty in your grace and the peace that comes from knowing you. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who do know you, God, empower us each day to recognize your voice in a world full of shiny idols promising fulfillment, valleys disguising themselves as mountaintops, and empty, lonely pits disguising themselves as staircases to acceptance. May we know your voice and trust in your way and be satisfied entirely by your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.